Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I thank you very much for your patience. I've tried to reason through this evidence, drawing the fair inferences as best we could, looking at the integrity of the evidence, and I just think there's very little question here, is there? So much of the essential facts in this case are just shot through with reasonable doubt. There is something wrong. There's something terribly wrong about this evidence. Somebody manufactured evidence in this case. There's missing blood. There's EDTA. There's questions, serious, deeply troubling questions. You must distrust it. You have to distrust it. You cannot render a verdict in this case of beyond a reasonable doubt on this kind of evidence. Because if you do, no one's safe. No one. The Constitution means nothing. This cannot, will not, shall not happen in this country with you good people. It just won't. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Sheck. That was the legendary Barry Sheck giving his closing argument in the O.J. Simpson case back in September 1995, and many credit it with the acquittal of Simpson in that case. My name is David Oscar Marcus, and it's my real pleasure to have Barry Sheck, the legendary, the titan, the wonderful criminal defense lawyer coming on for the defense to talk about not just Simpson, but the Innocence Project and all the work he does for our bar, for innocent defendants, for all defendants and for civil rights plaintiffs. I'm excited, I hope you are too. Let's get to it in For the Defense, next. So we're here with the wonderful Barry Sheck. I'm really honored and pleased to have him on the show. And we're gonna be talking about being a criminal defense lawyer, uh, what it's like to fight for uh, the innocent and what it's like to be um, in the trenches. So welcome to the show, Barry. Well, welcome. Uh, uh, I thank you very much, David. And just your listeners should know if they don't that you just got an acquittal for uh, Andrew Gillum um, and uh, they hung 10-2, you tell me, on the other counts. And the prosecution just before we started uh, said they're going to dismiss them. So uh, you deserve all the props <laughs> and congratulations today. Well, well, thank you. I mean, that case we tried out of town, and and I see you've tried lots of cases out of town. I know you tried OJ out of town for nine months, uh, and people don't realize what it's like to be um, on the road as a trial lawyer. Um, what was that like for you being on the road, not just in the OJ case, but in other cases, just being, being traveling? Uh, um, it's never great. Um the Simpson case, you know, was a, a different reality. I mean, because, uh, you know, you know, I start, you know, I started as a public defender in the South Bronx um, uh, in 1975. <clears throat> and after two and a half years there, I went to the Benjamin N. Cardozo School of Law for its first graduating class and started a clinical program, right? Uh, so, uh, and then taught everything else you could in the school of all different kinds, but uh, all different courses. Um, and, you know, put together a whole curriculum of, of, a, of a different sort. But uh, believe it or not, for the Simpson case, um, I actually could try that case. Um, and, uh, you know, went out to Los Angeles over Christmas, you know, read all the materials, got to meet you know, the ever-changing team, um, eventually uh, being led by Johnny, uh, who became, you know, a great friend and law partner on civil rights cases. Uh -huh. uh, but I actually taught a whole semester uh, at the law school of courses and just watched the trial on television. And it was all downloaded by Westlaw. 
so I could look at everything that happened. It was the most absurd, crazy experience. Amazing. Presume, presume you were able to do it uh, uh, long distance. I had, I, yeah, it was, uh, it was CNN and uh, Court TV and all the rest of it were our Zoom links. Right, uh, right. Instant transcript, daily copy. So that doesn't even count. But, I, you know, actually the times that um, I did the most uh, litigation out of town is that, uh, you know, I guess it's now over 20 years ago, uh, Johnny Cochran, Peter Newfeld, and I started a civil rights law firm. And, you know, Johnny was always doing civil rights stuff, but uh, Peter and I had never really thought about doing it per se. But, uh, you know, Johnny moved to New York after the Simpson case, and uh, we wound up being asked to assist uh, it, uh, the representation of Abner Louima, which was a case that, you know, blew the roof off New York right. City because he was a, a Haitian man who was uh, literally uh, framed by cops, brought to a precinct in Brooklyn, and they uh, sexually assaulted him with a, uh, essentially a broomstick uh, yeah, up his brutal. rectum. And it just blew the roof off the city. Uh, and actually resurrected, uh, he'll be the first to tell you, the Reverend Al Sharpton uh, <laughs> um, is a leader of that. So, you know, once we we we, we did that case and then uh, wound up, uh, you know, suing the police union, getting, you know, all kinds of non-economic relief uh, from them and from the city of New York, and that took years. But then after that, you know, we began doing a select number of civil rights cases, right? Um, some arising uh, from wrongful convictions, and that's when I really went out of town to try cases. Uh, it, it's a it's a big tax to you know, it's taxing on you and the family when you have to travel like that. Tremendous. Uh, it, it's very difficult. Right. Uh, let me ask you about the civil rights stuff, because I always found it interesting. I only do criminal and I'm always scared to go over to the civil side and, and do civil cases. Um, do the do the skills translate over uh, easily or was it a whole new world going over to the civil side? They translate so easily. It's ridiculous <clears throat> uh, because just envision this. Yeah, I couldn't believe I started taking depositions. Right. right? And, you know, you ask a question and the other side says objection and you say answer. <laughs> you know, that's right. it. And as long as you play by the rules, it's uh, uh, extraordinary. Um, and you don't you, know, you you and and the advantage that a criminal trial lawyer has uh, doing civil work is that you spend a lot of time planning the crosses. Uh, you know, or the, the adverse, <laughs> they become the adverse witness when you're the plaintiff uh, in a civil case, but you plan a lot of the crosses the way criminal defense lawyers would. And that is, you you have a plan for how you're going to get to the witness, the information that you have to impeach the witness, and you have a plan to maximize the chance of right. getting the answer you want. And you sequence everything like that. And what I found because uh, I did, I've done over the years a lot of teaching of trial practice, um, uh, you know, for major, for what, you know, I did all the NIDA stuff and the National Criminal Defense College and a lot of that over the years. But uh, for a while, I even got paid, believe it or not, uh, uh, to teach associates at major law firms how to try cases. And uh, what was strange to me is that, you know, I'm like, at Paul Weiss Rifkin, and I'm looking around at all these you know, <laughs> legendary trial lawyers and um, telling them how to do depositions, because as a criminal defense lawyer, you have insights into this that a lot of them don't. Right. And it it's that to be, uh, uh, you know, remarkable. I mean, I just look, I, I've taught clinical education, um, clinics, which I think in some ways is, you know, the the most enriching and deepest experience. When I started teaching clinics, it was the beginning of the clinical education movement. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, we learned from people like Tony Amsterdam and uh, a whole group of uh, uh, um, guy up in, uh, it was a great, the early clinicians had really thought this through. And the idea is that you want students to know everything about 
uh, reading cases, precedent, how to understand, uh, uh, you know, the basic case law and reason about it, right? What we teach you in the first year or two of law school. Right. Then clinics are more important in a way because you have to do fact gathering. You have to teach interviewing skills. Yeah. You have to, in, in my mind, do problem solving and look at institutions, figure out how to change them. So I was extremely lucky to be among the first to start doing clinical education in the legal academy. Um, and, you know, some people did only small cases, you know, supervising the students. You know, uh, we did that, but we also did what we call major litigation projects. And the major litigation projects were, uh, you know, big criminal cases, right, right, homicide cases, federal appointments. Um, and then we would do uh, interesting cases involving science. And uh, in uh, at the very beginning, in like 1989, 88, 89, uh, we, you know. Uh, uh, I did with uh, uh, my colleague, Peter Neufeld, we did uh, some of the early DNA cases. Um, yeah, I want to talk to you about those those DNA cases. I want to talk to you about how that got started. And, and actually, um, you know, you started the Innocence Project back when, in the early 90s. 1992, but we, we litigated the admissibility of DNA testing um, in like 1988, uh, 1989. And what happened is it's quite extraordinary and very lucky people uh, that we understood that uh, this was going to be transformative, right? Um, and became very interested in it and got appointed by the first Governor Cuomo to some committees to actually think about the uh, transfer of this uh, technology being used for research uh, and uh medical purposes to the forensic arena and that transfer of technology you know uh, uh nobody should have assumed uh, that uh, that would be easy or it wouldn't create its own challenges and what we discovered right away um is that uh, there were a number of companies that were trying to win market share by making their dna technology the one to use mm. right both for public labs and private litigants um, and they were putting out papers and, you know, advertising that they could do this before they had even done, you know, really proper validation. So we first got involved with our old public defender's office, um, where somebody came to us and said, oh, you're very interested in this, because we held the first academic conference on uh, uh, DNA in the criminal legal system. Uh, and uh, they said, I have a case of a guy named Castro, and they wanted to say, the prosecutor wanted to say, blood on the watch that he was wearing came from the victim, but it didn't come from him. So we just did the admissibility hearing, right? Um, and uh, the Fry hearing in right, New York. Right. We did it in front of Judge Judy's husband, Jerry Scheinman, right? right. And um, it's quite extraordinary to think about. Um, and uh, uh, so we wound up uh, reaching out to all, you know, these great experts, because we thankfully knew something about conventional serology. But we began meeting all these geneticists who were in their 30s, right, uh, and early 40s who were in the labs that were mapping the human, human genome. Amazing. Amazing. And so we went to a conference and we met this fellow, Eric Lander, who, uh, you know, had become President Biden's science advisor, first time a cabinet position, who led the public group that mapped the human genome. But when we first met him, that was all in progress. And we met him at a conference and we showed them the auto rads and everything that uh, the prosecution in the Bronx wanted to use in this Castro case. And it, they, he took a look at them and he said, this is ridiculous. Right. And we brought in a whole group of witnesses. Um, and the other side already had signed up uh, Nobel Prize winners, you know, because they naturally assumed all this is going to work. Uh, is understandable. Uh, and uh, we showed that they hadn't figured out the ways. Uh, first of all, was, you know, when they used that testing RFLP with the bands, people remember that from the Simpson days and other times, but <clears throat> they couldn't even 
they didn't they hadn't validated a matching rule for these restriction fragment length polymorphisms and they had no idea um, how to do uh, the kind of validation one needed uh, uh, to tell us anything about the population genetics about the probative value of any association that you could get right and so you know we at this hearing we put on all this evidence uh exposed all the problems right uh, and the prosecution witnesses recanted in the middle of the hearing oh my god hearing took nine months but uh we were bringing in people from everywhere uh but they recanted and i remember dr lander uh got a he wanted an apple computer and he got all the scientists together and they wrote a joint statement saying that the prosecution's you know evidence to associate uh the defendant with uh uh say the, the blood say the saying the blood on the watch came from the victim that uh the matching rule was wrong the population genetics uh were wrong and that uh, uh the national academy of science sort of form a group to study the transfer of this technology for medical and research purposes to the forensic arena. And that's exactly what happened. From that hearing, it went to an article that Eric Lander wrote for Nature to the uh, uh, National uh, Research Council appointing the first of a number of committees uh, on DNA testing. So, uh, you know, that was a major litigation project. Right, right. Uh, and uh, we recognized immediately that this would be a big deal. Um, and we knew that uh, uh, there were problems with using it to say this blood, you know, this biology came from that person. Uh, on the other hand, exclusions were pretty easy, right? There was not much dispute about it if, you know, the bands are really right. different. Um, and so we recognized immediately that this was going to be a big deal. Um, and uh, one of uh, the people that really helped us was uh, Janet Reno. My friend Bill Church was working for Janet Reno in those old days, but Janet immediately commissioned a book, convicted by juries, exonerated by science, the study of like the first 36 of them. Um, and we wrote a forward with uh, 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 to that. And uh, she immediately established a uh, commission on the future of DNA evidence with the National Institute of Justice. She was uh, a progressive prosecutor before there were progressive prosecutors. Yeah, she was great. She, she was great. Uh, and when we became an independent, we had developed an independent nonprofit uh, uh, at the Innocence Project, still affiliated with uh, Cardozo Law School. Uh, Janet was on our first board. So it, it's amazing, Barry. You know, you you and Peter are are you started this project however many years ago it was, and now. 1992 so and and now there there are innocence clinics at law schools throughout the country there are innocence projects in every state it's it's you guys are heroes to so many people and are and are doing such good work um what one of the things that still strikes me about it is that prosecutors don't embrace it you would think they would want these results they wouldn't want an innocent person in jail and yet in so many cases that i read about they say the prosecutors object uh to the testing the prosecutors object to the uh, person coming back to court it's it 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 still really bothers me i don't under i don't even understand well, it yeah it, well of course and and you're right to be puzzled by people that would not want to know uh if an innocent person had been convicted and didn't seem too concerned about the fact that the, the guilty party got away to uh, free to commit more crimes. But one of the things that happened right away uh, and shows you how smart Janet Reno was, that uh, when we started this commission on the future of DNA evidence, right? one of the first things that happened um, uh, is that uh, we formed the subcommittee that wrote a book on recommendations for, uh, for uh, DNA testing, right? And it was uh, de designing ahead of time best practices, right? And we, we looked at all the different stakeholders. Here's the best practice if you're a prosecutor. And we said, look, um, here's category one, category two. These are cases where even though the law 
allows you to say, I'm not going to allow you to come in and ask for DNA test because the statute of limitations ran years ago, right? You should consent because it's a single perpetrator rape case. Right. Or it's an obvious one. So category one, category two cases, you consent. Uh, maybe there's a category three, maybe it's a anybody's guess. Four and five, you don't have to consent. Um, and those were recommendations for prosecutors. But then there were recommendations for crime labs, recommendations for victim services agencies to talk to the people that were harmed by crimes whose cases were now subject to DNA testing. There could be a different result. Recommendations for defendants, recommendations for uh, defense lawyers. You know, we we really covered the waterfront with that. And, you know, I had been very focused personally just on let's pass a statute, right? Because when we started in 1992, there were only two states uh, that had a post-conviction DNA statute, New York and Illinois, and that was not an accident that uh, right. those had been passed. Uh, but eventually we had a model statute and eventually there were other guidelines that came out of that commission. But, uh, uh, you know, that was, so we changed a lot of minds, right? Um, interestingly, uh, you know, so that that helped us. So even in jurisdictions where prosecutors were being uh, very foolish in, in not wanting to find the truth, right? We got more consents than you ever would have believed. Huh. Um, so it's, uh, in retrospect, it's uh, quite something. And, and now the uh, network, uh, we have uh, 71 innocence organizations within our network. Uh, in the United States and 13 abroad. It's become an international human rights movement. Um, and many of those um, uh, innocence organizations within the United States, um, you know, obviously they started in law schools. Uh, and that was by a conscious design because we began teaching courses, uh, wrongful convictions, causes, and remedies. Because from the beginning, it was not just about exonerating people. It was by doing a deep dive academically uh, uh, into what are the factors that bring about wrongful convictions, right? Teach everybody how to use DNA and to start thinking about it. But what about eyewitness misidentification and false confessions and junk forensic science and uh, uh, bad forensic science, prosecutorial misconduct, police misconduct, right? Uh, bad lawyers, and of course, the worst of all, uh, was uh, the, the intractable problem of race, the original sin. Right. So we had this whole course uh, that was by 2000 when we you know, began really launching the network uh, uh, that any law professor could say, okay, I've got a three credit course. It's all, uh, you have video lectures, you know, race, we found this young man to talk about race who'd never nobody had ever heard of named brian stevenson <laughs> Steve yeah, Bryan talking about uh, indigent defense i mean we had you know gary wells did eyewitness identification you name it we had the leading experts so you could say to your law school here is a three credit course and we did everything on westlaw right we had three or we had four video conference hiccup set hookups um, did hiccup. It was very bad. <laughs> yeah. But we did those lectures in an hour and a half. And Sam Guyberson, who you might have dealt with over the years, who was a, 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 an NACDL person uh, who did a lot of technology, he came and he videotaped them all for nothing. Amazing. And we took the videotapes. We would tape on Thursday. He'd send them out on Friday. And by Monday of the next week, you had a lecture and a course and we went through the NACDL uh, book, and we said to each of these professors in law schools, here are the best criminal defense lawyers in your jurisdiction. Call them up, and they'll help you get innocent people out of jail. So all your friends, probably most of the people you've interviewed on this podcast, did it. So it's it's funny because, you know, that's what I'm trying to do with this podcast is talk to trial lawyers and try to get back out there the art of trying cases and how important it is to be trying cases um and and to speak with folks like you who have tried such important and big cases 
because the, the trial is dying and and it's it's really too bad because i think what happens is innocent people are pleading guilty you're one of your judges in new york who we had on the podcast jed rakoff talked about you know the yeah. problem with innocent folks pleading guilty and there are so many reasons for it i mean you talk about in civil cases um just getting depositions we we don't get depositions in criminal cases that alone i think would help. No, wait a second dave you're practicing in florida well, we do get depots here in state court. In no, no, I mean, you know, what about the rest of us? You know, we're just getting discovery. I couldn't believe you get depositions. By the way, Missouri gets them too, but they don't take advantage of them. Yeah, so I'm, not- I'm surprised DeSantis hasn't gotten rid of uh, depots here yet. He just uh, he just passed a new statute um, uh, saying the death penalty can be imposed here in Florida with with a vote of eight as opposed to twelve. It's 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 nuts. Um, so who knows how much longer we'll have depots. Well, yeah, but I have a strong recommendation for you. All right. I mean, one of the interesting things about Florida is that you've had these open records laws, right? That's right. Um, And so that has really made a a gigantic difference. Um, And we're just catching up to it in the rest of the country. Um, And, uh, you know, you've had access, if you've wanted it, uh, to uh, files from uh, police departments where they make adjudications, and I think uh, I think even unsubstantiated, unfounded uh, allegations of misconduct. And uh, one of the main things I'd like to see in Florida um, is that you know we have projects going on across the country, and when I say we, I mean innocence organizations, the ACLU, journalism schools, you know, progressive people who want uh, you know criminal legal reform. Uh, trying to create databases of this misconduct information. So the next frontier, um, which Florida is uniquely situated uh, 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 to pursue, is to get all of this data, right, and create databases. So the vision that I have, I wrote something about this and some law review articles, but we're, we're doing it in different jurisdictions, is that in every jurisdiction, you uh, major jurisdiction, you will want to have a public facing database. Uh, uh, the most famous model is the one in Illinois, uh, in Chicago, uh, from the Invisible Institute, which is a, a, a journalistic enterprise started by Jamie Calvin and others, uh, where you go there, you go to the Citizens Police database, and you can't believe what you see. Amazing. It's all these cops. Uh, and they got everything, by the way, because of a case called Calvin versus the city of Chicago. They wanted under case law what you've had it by statute for years. But then they began uh, gathering all the information. So uh, then the Legal Aid Society in New York started creating uh, applications on they could use on cell phones to track the misconduct information. So each lawyer could come into court and you'd see who arrested the client, right? Which cop? And then you would immediately get, you know, all the information about the, the the police officer. And then you can begin to track this information in terms of what are the patterns of constitutional violations in a particular jurisdiction. And it's not just one officer that gets tagged for the misconduct or uh, violated, uh, uh, you know, the Fourth Amendment or however right. many amendments and committed acts of misconduct. But what about that person's supervisors, Right. And so you should be able to create an, a, a really incredible database in Florida, and you have the rights and the ability to go after those police officers, um, uh, you know, and make sure that they essentially get decertified or lose their licenses. So we need to start to the up. we need yeah. to start the Brady Project uh, in, in, in uh, association with the Innocence Project. Well, the Brady Project is, uh, you know, in my view. You know what we call conviction integrity units, which yeah, we have. That's right. Uh, 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 we're quite responsible for getting them started. I'm not swearing behind all of them, but it's a good theory, good institution to have. But uh, prosecutors, as you mentioned at the very beginning, they should be as concerned as defense lawyers. But they're not. They, they, but they want to win. So, so you know, it always bothers me how much they they care about winning over. Over sort of doing the right thing, and and I think the problem is one of the things that we're talking about is they view the the truth as did the person do it or not. Criminal defense lawyers are often worried about 
the process truth, right? So what did the cops lie? Did the cops plan evidence? Did the cops do bad things? And so there's this, this fight, this tension about, you know, did the person do it versus sort of was the process okay? And and one of the things I like to talk about with young lawyers is, you know, it's so important because I don't think jurors appreciate a bad process. They still are focused on, are these people lying to us? Are these people um, doing the right thing? And if they believe there's a cover-up, if they believe the cops are lying, they, yeah. they will vote to acquit. Yeah. Well, I think juries will do that. And uh, uh, But... You know, the one thing I would say is that we have to, you know, I'm a law professor, right? So I've trained, uh, you know, generations of people, uh, you know, to practice law and to do trials and to think about, uh, uh, you know, forensic science and uh, ethical rules, uh, you know, and ethical rules civilly and criminally. And and in my view, um I think prosecutors, uh, there are prosecutors, we have to train them, they have to, uh, to care as much about, uh, you know, following the rules and getting the truth out, uh, they should take as much or more pride in correcting an injustice as they do in getting a conviction. Because, you know, what we learn very quickly on the defense side is you have to be humble. You think you know, but you don't really know. <laughs> right, uh, right. Why we have trials. And if they took that seriously, and I think many do, uh, and we train them to do that, and we, uh, uh, it becomes different. And so one of the things I should point out um, is that when we began working, uh, frankly, it was with the Dallas District Attorney's Office was the first time it really happened. That's when an African-American criminal defense lawyer shocked the world by being elected uh, district attorney in Dallas in 2007, Craig Watkins. And then he started this conviction integrity process, bringing right. in defense lawyers and people from the Innocence, Texas Innocence Project and the National Innocence Project. And we just started doing all this DNA testing in old cases and looking at them and basically established a set of informal rules that we've now codified. Um, and when you start thinking about the post-conviction space, right? In other words, the, the case is now over. And yes, there's an adversary system. And yes, as you described, people get into tunnel vision and both sides really want to win, right? Yeah. Um, and that really distracts uh, everybody sometimes from plain problems with the evidence that we all should be concerned about. But when you get to the post-conviction space, mm -hmm. that shouldn't be the that shouldn't be true. Right. So we pass some ethical rules. Uh, uh, and Bruce Green and Ellen Yaroshevsky get great credit for this, uh, you know, that kind of came out of the innocence work, uh, you know, 3.8 G and H of the ABA rules, but they're different numbers in other jurisdictions. And that is in a post-conviction setting, if a prosecutor uh, knows of information uh, that uh, uh, is material evidence of innocence, right? Um, then they have to disclose it, even right. post-conviction when the case is over. And if right. they know clear and convincing evidence of innocence, they've got to do something about it. Yeah, and good. once you envision it that way, right. it justifies our recommendations that you should have a conviction integrity unit that follows those ethical rules and that is the CIU uh, a person who runs the CIU, A, should be a person that's had experience doing defense work because cognitive bias is such a strong factor, right? Yep. Uh, that lots of people that have spent all their years doing nothing but prosecution, it's very hard for them to wrap their minds around, uh, but they don't look evidence the same way a defense lawyer would. So Correct. you should have a defender there uh, and they should report directly to the district attorney or the district attorney's counsel. Right. It, 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 because it shouldn't be other people in the office that had something to do with that conviction that can weigh in on it. Right. They should just be witnesses. Right. And so we have a whole bunch of best practices like that. And across the country, progressive district attorneys have been elected. You don't have to be a progressive to believe in this kind of process. Uh, and they put units together. And I'm not saying they're all good. They're not. Uh, but if you follow this kind of process on the back end, right, 
you get to justice, and you learn a hell of a lot about the cases. So by the way, I should jump right ahead and just tell you, we're talking about civil and criminal, right? You know, we would get, we literally got hundreds of people out of prison who didn't commit the crimes, but we never really figured out what happened until yep. we sued them. As <laughs> opposed to everybody. So, right? so wonderful. It's so, so different. And that's the kind of stuff, by the way, get right back to Florida, uh, where I suppose more people listen to you from Florida than anywhere else. I think, think that's right. I think that's okay. right. Yep. So what you should be able to pull together with the defenders and the ACLU and the and and different and press, right? Pointer Institute, Tampa Bay Times, a lot of good uh, press people in your state, um, and with the Civil Rights Bar. You have an unprecedented opportunity to not just look at uh, not just create a database of cases where we know convictions have been vacated, right? But you should go back and look at the civil cases that were brought after that, right? Right. And then the database can have all of that information in it, right? And you can commonly code and tag that information. And the reason that you can do it now in the ways we never have done before is that it is a different world. We are in the world of chat GBT4. <laughs> we are the ability to do data mining, right? And to dive into this data. There are definitely dangers, but the ability to do that uh, as never before uh, can really change the system. And so, so we have true. to be ones to get this done first. So important and so true. So, so let me take you back to your your PD days for a second, when you were learning to try cases, and now you wow. teach it, of course. When I first graduated law school, my my buddy Milton Hirsch gave me the Herbert Stern books to read uh, to to become a great trial lawyer, and I gobbled those up. And now I love to read. I love to read old trial books. What what do you recommend for your students, and what did you look at when you were first a PD to to learn the the craft? Well, uh, it's interesting. Um, I, I had read a lot of uh, biography of it. This is sort of fun, but it's interesting. Uh, Earl Rogers uh, from Los Angeles, a really great trial lawyer. His daughter, Adela Rogers St. John, has wrote a really interesting uh, biography of him. And uh, since I did go to law school in California, and I would, you know, Berkeley Law School, but I would go sometimes to Los Angeles and I'd read the transcripts of his trials. Um, then, uh, uh, in terms of, you know, I mean, look, I was a clinical teacher, so I was reading a lot about, uh, 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 you know, trial practice and doing, you know, training and all the, the NIDA methods and uh, other things. But there was a wonderful book that we all started with uh, called The Lawyering Process by Gary Bellow. Uh, the late Gary Bellow, who was uh, a great leader at the beginning of this, he died much too young up at Harvard. And that book had a skills dimension and an ethical dimension for every skill uh, in terms of the lawyering process. <coughs> Excuse me, that that's a great book. Did uh, um, did did Lee Bailey make you read his books during Simpson, or or he he was uh, what did he do? Well, listen, uh, when I was in high school. Uh, my father managed a singer named Connie Francis. And Effie Bailey uh, was dating or wanted to date Connie Francis. So at the height of his fame, uh, when he was trying, uh, you know, some of these big cases in New Jersey when he was starting out, um, he had to take an interview from a high school newspaper editor Right. Um, so I interviewed F. Lee Bailey about all his big cases as a junior and or senior in high school. Amazing. And I walked out of uh, uh, the hotel room um, and then Nat Hentoff walked in to interview him for Playboy. <laughs> That's great. So, you know, at one point in the middle of the Simpson trial, I showed Lee this interview and I, you know, I think his his mother liked it, uh, but it was ironic. That's really funny. I I interviewed him for this podcast shortly before he died, which um, he he was still wonderful and on top of things. And and um, uh, what a character! He wrote a great book. His book for the defense 
It was a great book. Really good. Really, really good. So, so you know, that trial obviously was televised. And, and I know lots of people have strong opinions because of OJ about whether trials should be televised. It seems to, I, I, I always think federal court should be more open, especially the Supreme Court. What, yeah. what are your thoughts about whether we should have these things televised or not? Well, I've gone back and forth uh, on that issue. <clears throat> uh, I did a case uh, before um, the Simpson case, years before the Simpson case, as a clinical professor. Uh, I represented a woman named Hedda Nussbaum, um, and she was uh, indicted with her live-in batterer uh, companion, Joel Steinberg, a, a, a lawyer, although uh, I think he wasn't really barred, uh, who illegally adopted a, ch- uh, a child and they were living in Greenwich Village down the block from our law school. And uh, <clears throat> one day, poor Lisa Steinberg was brought into the hospital because he had uh, uh, battered her. Um, and, uh, you know, she died from those injuries. And they went into the home and they found Head and Usbaum, uh, who, uh, you know, had been a drop-dead gorgeous book editor from Random House. And uh, by the time uh, she, you know, was taken out of uh, Joel's apartment, uh, the two of them, uh, she looked uh, horrible. You know, she had a ruptured spleen. Her face was a mess. She was battered. She was aged. Her hair had turned gray. Um, It was horrible. Uh, You know, they were both... uh, uh, smoking crack cocaine and in some kind of a delusional system. Uh, and I wound up representing her because I had been representing battered women's um, with my friend Michael Dowd and others. Sure. And so uh, we began representing Hedda. Uh, and uh, uh, that case, uh, you know, we, we actually got the prosecutors to agree. It's amazing to think about um, that she was not guilty by reason of insanity. Wow. Even she could never be a witness. And the reason was, is that the prosecutors, including my friend and a really amazing prosecutor, uh, a great person named Peter Casalaro, uh, you know, we were all young parents, right? Mm-hmm. And we interviewed all these witnesses and we said, oh my God, we can see what happened here. This is horrendous, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, so we put her in a, a, a Four Winds uh, drug facility, and she actually was able finally to testify uh, and did. But all of this had wall-to-wall publicity all over the United States and around the world. Uh, if you can imagine, in New York City, all three networks televised the trial Amazing. instead of regular daytime programming. Amazing. So Now, but that, you know, prior to that, um, I had really been a traditional civil libertarian, and I was in favor of cameras in the courtroom. Right. right? And then after that trial, when I saw its effects uh, on witnesses um, and on the proceedings, right, um, I changed my mind um, and uh, felt that it should only be done uh, with the consent of both sides. Um, and uh, and I and I think. Some ways, uh, I was part of a whole group after the Simpson case, an ABA uh, book on how to handle hope high-profile trials that had a lot of great recommendations. But um, I still pretty much take that view. Uh, uh, I, a friend of mine from college, uh, Steve Brill, who's a great journalist, a legal journalist, he invented Court TV. Court TV, right. And when we started Court TV, we, I mean, I was like a, a guinea pig, you know, I mean, <laughs> right. we did the the rules. Uh, uh, we had rules, right? Cynthia McFadden and Terry Moran, we had anchors that really knew everything. Right. You walked into Court TV, you had a briefing book, you knew what the jury instructions were, you knew the issues in the case, you had to familiarize yourself with the prior day's proceedings. Not um, so much anymore. Oh my God! And, right. and we, we and literally uh, we developed uh, Elizabeth Semmel and myself and some money. We we wrote uh, ethical rules for legal commentators. Yeah. You know, I mean, because when it becomes an industry for ratings and people that get on television and they start saying things and they don't know what they're talking about, believe me, and I'm sure you've had this experience, David. Right? That 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 
changes the case that makes a trouble for everyone. I mean, you know, this Gillum case that we were in was in federal court. So there was obviously no cameras, but there was a lot of local coverage about it. And we would leave the day thinking, wow, we just kicked the government's ass. Like we just exposed this witness. And then we'd read the articles and we were wondering what, who's like, how is this possible that they, that they're writing about this one line as opposed to. You're talking about writing. What's even worse when they're televised. Right. That they take the snippets of the witness's testimony and they'll always take the moment of maximum conflict because if it bleeds, it leads. Right. And that was not the most important moment in the witness's testimony. That's right. I have learned years ago that anything I read, uh, or even if it's on televised trial, right? Um, you, <laughs> if you're not in the courtroom, you really don't know what's happening. It's and true. So- it's it's so true because we were wondering: Are these people watching the same trial <laughs> that we're involved in? Absolutely. I mean, but but that being said, like, you know, I'm still a fan of things being televised, and I'll, I'll tell you why. Like. I, in preparing for this, I went back and watched your closing for OJ. Like I wouldn't have been able to do that um, had it not been televised. I thought it was so cool. Like I'm watching the closing from 1997 or 98, whatever it was, um, as opposed to reading like the cold transcripts. And and you can get a lot out of seeing it. I, I, I saw from the beginning of your closing when Marsha Clark objected. And and uh, I don't know if you remember this, how upset you were at the beginning and you guys went sidebar and and I guess Ito let you continue uh, arguing about the integrity of the system uh, that she was objecting to. But it was it was fascinating to watch that, which you would not have gotten from a cold transcript. Well, the other thing, though, is that uh, I think appellate arguments should all be televised. Yes, yes. That, there's very little excuse for not doing that, you know, subject to protective orders and things like that. Right. Uh, no question about that. Uh, but I, I think there are still some difficulties with televising trials, and it, it doesn't matter. It's not a question of even national publicity, as you just pointed out in the Gillen case. Um, local publicity is enough, right? And that can even be more uh, potentially prejudicial to right. you know local parties. Right. So right. Uh, it's you know, especially in an era of social media, yeah. and and you know the it. it it's crazy. I mean, so, you know, there are trade-offs. You know, people see it on television. Witnesses do come forward. Right. That wouldn't have known that the case is being tried. That certainly happened to me. Uh, but uh, look, I've been through a bunch of these. <laughs> yeah, I'd say so. Um, so and, uh, uh, you know, I, I still think the best thing is both sides should consent. So one last area before before I let you go, Barry, and that is, you know, you mentioned earlier the NACDL, which you were the former president of, and a, and a lot of young lawyers who want to become criminal defense lawyers listen to this. Um, should should they get active in NACDL? Should they get? How do they become um, exposed? I always tell people NACDL is great because you can meet all the greats and all the great, wonderful uh, criminal defense lawyers out there. And you were the actual president of the organization, so so here's a here's a pitch for NACDL. Oh, well, I, I, I was uh, actually, ironically, I was the only person who was ever president in two years because my president- Are you crazy? They died. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> no, but, you know, when you say you're president, you know, it's a leadership track. So you have to serve on all these offices. Yeah. And then after you're president, you continue. And I'm now still on the board of trustees. And, <clears throat> yeah, I've never left NACDL. And it's a great organization. Um, but, you know, so- and. The most important thing, though, is that, yes, you can learn from the best. You get great continuing legal education, but there is no substitute for talking uh, to people like yourself who are gifted trial lawyers who are in the trenches, right? That's how you really learn uh, what's up, to be honest. Right. And I think uh, we are much better um, if we work together than if we work alone. Uh, there's no question I mean, the NACDL and the Innocence Network and the American Bar Association um, and all kinds of uh, uh, terrific organizations, uh, National Association of uh, uh, Public Defenders, we all have to work in unity. Uh, You know, impacted uh, community groups will never change this system uh, unless we all learn to work together, share information, 
um, and uh, you know treat it treat each other with love and respect and that includes uh, people uh, you know that prosecute uh, we'll even we- include the prosecutors it's okay we'll include them too and I you know look, <laughs> I, I I've, uh, I've I've I bring a lot of bar complaints against <laughs> yeah I believe that uh, you know we all have to be held responsible and you know one of the biggest problems uh, not only is the 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 standard for ineffective assistance of counsel is uh, Judge Marshall pointed out uh, dissenting in Strickland. You know, it, it's terrible that the standard has to do with the, essentially the lowest common denominator. Right. You know, right. What's a reasonable standard in your jurisdiction? Right. Yeah, we need objective rules if we're going to change anything. And then on the other side, um, this whole notion of absolute immunity for prosecutors um, at the at the trial phase. You know, I mean, that's not in the Constitution. That's a made up rule of the of the, the Supreme Court. And they should only have uh, uh, qualified immunity or at the very least, we have at least one statute passed in California and should be other jurisdictions that if you're a prosecutor and you engage in deliberate and intentional con- uh, conduct uh, that leads to the conviction of an innocent person on a felony case, you should be subject to criminal charges. 100 percent. One thousand percent. And that's the only way the system is going to change. Right. Well, listen, um, Barry, thank you so much for for being on the show. But more importantly, thank you for everything that you do for uh, the criminal defense bar and for uh, the Innocence Project and the innocent folks out there. Seriously, uh, all of us look up to you and we appreciate you. So thank you. Well, thank you, David. And congratulations on your acquittal. Right. That's what keeps us going. Yes, sir. (laughs) Yes, and sir. let's make sure that we get some of this uh, uh, police misconduct databases going in the state of Florida. That'll be revolutionary. I really could have spoken with Barry for the next five hours. I mean, the stories he has, the trials he's done, the experiences in the criminal defense bar and the progress he's made for our bar and our clients. So I just want to thank Barry for doing it. And, you know, that's the real point of the podcast is telling these stories from the legends Um, and getting them out there because, you know, so much is made from prosecutors and prosecuting people and putting people in jail and law enforcement. I think it's the best stories to tell from the other side, from our defense uh, practitioners, from our criminal defense lawyers. So I hope you're enjoying it. Um, We'll have some more coming up in the next couple of weeks. That was Barry Sheck. My name is David Oscar Marcus, and that's for the defense. Thank you.